Not the right one. Where we solve mysteries. That's tonight's episode. Oh, can we kill the French instead? I mean, it would be very tempting. Maybe we could solve the mystery of getting rid of the French somehow. Yeah, get no, rid of. We shouldn't uh, be glorifying killing the French. We are going to solve some monsteries. Some monsteries? Some monsteries. Solve some monsteries, as you said. Solve some monsteries. Yes. Uh, Stefan so, is heading this episode because he has the list of mysteries and he knows the most about these sorts of things because it's one of the things that interests you. Dude, I just get interested by anything weird. I get interested by anything weird, but a lot of the times I'll get interested in it, read a little bit about it, and then sort of leave it be. Like, with mysteries and stuff, I'll sort of read a bit into it and learn bits and pieces, but a lot of them, it's just sort of a, meh. But yeah. you, you... Man, when, we're, when, we're to, when we're together, we fixate and try and solve them. When yeah, you're I love, alone, I you love my fixate anyway. I love a good conspiracy theory or a good true mystery slash true crime thing. Um, so, uh, you mentioned... So, what happened last week? We had some issues, but we're going to solve yes. that. It's not at all because I just fell asleep and then woke up at about half past ten. But we'll... Anyway, um, <laughs> otherwise you would have just had me alone <laughs> babbling and talking like a crazy man alone in his room, work. just talking to himself. I got so in from probably... work shattered. Well, I thought I'll have a lie down for an hour. Turned out to be a five hour nap, which is a full night's sleep for me. So, yeah. <laughs> um, On the plus side, though, I did get actually, I can't remember what I did that night. What did I do that night? Oh, fuck knows. Ah, you're probably just chilled, man. I'm so used to routine that I don't know what I do when <laughs> I don't do the routine now. So anyway, um, we banned obvious ones, so like stuff like DB Cooper or the Zodiac Killer, which or has the Mary Celeste, Amazon or... shows, and all that sort of shit. Just well-known things, well-talked about, well-circulated things. We want to go for stuff a bit different, so. Ooh, I've got I've got three kind of bigger stories, a couple of honourable mentions and that. Where would you like to start? We can start on the open seas, we can start on the beach, we can start in the forest, or we can have a, just a couple of honourable mentions of stuff that I kind of glossed across but not, not torn about really. Right. Me being me, at the current moment, my current obsession is the high seas of the 17th and 18th century on old school sail ships. Since we did a topic saying someone has built an old school sail ship to do transport missions in real life, basically, uh, yeah. I have been slightly obsessed. I've been rewatching Master and Com Commander and Master, Master and Commander. I've been rewatching some other stuff. I've also been looking for some games that do it because I absolutely love Black Flag, but haven't been like my 360 is now dead. So I will choose the high seas, please, my dear sir. Well, I have got the 17th century, but does 1947 suffice? That shall suffice, yes. That That is just after the World War is finished, two years after the World War is finished, correct? It is. No, so finished. there's loads of ghost stories about ships being abandoned, or so I like the Mary Celeste. Was that the one that? Yeah, it was. So they found yeah. it, and it was perfectly fine, but there's no chrome board, and there's been loads of... It could have been yeah, like it's, an it's alcohol just... explosion or something that didn't leave damage or something, but it's weird. Yeah, the, the crew just seems um, to have vanished. Nobody was found on board, but the ship was perfectly saleable and usable, so why leave it? Yeah. 
or they find one where they come across it, just everybody's dead, and no one knows why. Like, was it USS Cyclops that did that? Oh no, that's thing. I'm not sure. I, anyway, we'll, I, I know we'll that get there was. Of. I know that there was something that that, that they discovered. I think it was a submarine, and everybody on board they lost communication. They were wondering why they went to investigate, and they opened up the hatch, and then immediately had to seal it again just because it was a, it was something in the in the chlorine, basically. It, something in the engine room had happened and it was just chlorine gas, so they had no, to dude. immediately shut it. Are you one about the guy that fucked the toilet up when he went for a shit and the heart of service to you, but because of the chlorine gas? No, there was another one. I'm sure there was another one where it was like everybody on, on board ended up dying from the, chlor- from the chlorine gas or like something happened on it where everybody died. They opened up the hatch Sort of took one quick look at it and then immediately sealed it back up because. Dude, what it is was... it? I read a thing the other day where three people died in a in a just a swim pool because people had mixed the chlorine wrong and created chlorine gas somehow. What is it with I... the chlorine gas in everyone? Well, now, <laughs> my first and only time at Wet and Wild, because I knew oh, someone that worked there. I went there and they gave us a full refund because everybody's eyes were stinging like a bitch because they put too much chlorine in the water. Well, at least it was chlorine gas. And they legitimately had to evacuate wet and wild. They had to like go on the bonger saying like please leave and everything. <laughs> because bonger. because they were worried they were gonna make it because apparently the chlorine levels were getting too high. Hold on, did you get did you go in and get some swimming done and get sore eyes? I went in, got some got some swimming done. Right, okay. And then left, but everybody's eyes, even those who were just like working at the desks and stuff, everybody's eyes were like Ooh, on fire just burning. <laughs> No, so what I was going to say was, because if you hadn't getting in there, then what you were saying is the one and only time you've ever been to Wet and Wild, you didn't go to Wet and Wild. <laughs> no, I did go in the water, but I was in the water for like 10 minutes. <laughs> that doesn't really count. Hey, so anyway, uh, loads of ghost ship story things and stuff, but I found what is one of the weirdest, possibly most disturbing, is the case of the SS Urang Madan. <coughs> SS Urang Madan, yes, you were sort of talking about this, but trying not to give anything away because we were playing the game yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, it says, according to widely circulated reports, in the June of 1947, or according to some alternate accounts, it could be February 1948, but there's less of them reports, multiple ships traversing the trade routes of the Straits of Malaga, which is located between modern-day uh, Sumatra and Malaysia, is claimed to have picked up a series of SOS distress signals. The unknown ship's message was as simple as it was disturbing. So the exact message that is reported by multiple accounts is, obviously over radio, all officers, including the captain, are dead, lying in the chart room and bridge, possibly whole crew dead. This communication was followed by a burst of indecipherable Morse code that was never decoded, and then a final message of, I die. Um, this was then followed by just absolute silence. Okay. Could the so, Morse code just just be him, like his hand <laughs> shaking while trying to do it? Possibly, man. Because I know it takes some control to do Morse code. If his hand's shaking, it's going to just turn out as jumbled mess. Yeah. Uh, so the tone distress call was picked up by two American <coughs> ships as well as a British and a Dutch listening posts. So there's a British listening post, listening post picked it up. A Dutch listening post picked it up. Two American ships. Yeah, uh, the man manning these posts managed to triangulate the source of these broadcasts and deduced that they were likely emanating from a Dutch freighter known as the SS Urang Madan, 
which was navigating the Straits of Malaga. A conscripted American merchant ship called the Silver Star was easily the closest presumed location to uh, to the easy, yeah, easily the closest to the presumed location of the Orang Medan. Originally christened the Santa Cecilia by the Grace Line, W.R. Grace & Co., the vessel had been renamed the Silver Star when the United States Maritime Commission drafted it in 1946. Because the draft everything, steal and change the name. Just because yes. it's not patriotic enough. So, yeah. So, oh, what are you thinking so far? So, there's a Dutch merchant ship that's sent out a distress call. That's quite weird. Followed by I Die. Uh, he said the captain and crew are dead. Most of the crew, if not all, are dead. Uh, the captain's senior officers are dead, possibly the whole crew. He said I die. Then it was silent. They triangulated it from listening posts and decided that SS Silver Star is now closest. So go. Who is translating the uh, the radio call? Because I'm assuming since it was a Dutch ship, it would be in fine. Dutch. I don't know if it would be in English. If it isn't English, then you can understand that I die might just be localism, uh, linguistics, just... Um, Getting you well, so before you go any further it. into it, there was a British listening post picked it up and a Dutch listening post picked it up. So it's quite possible that they spoke to each other, kind of did you hear this? Yes, I did, okay, and that they worked out where it was in the water, right? But it's obviously, I agree, it's a Dutch ship, it's probably Dutch speaking, so it's probably the Dutch side, the Dutch listening post that wrote up the message or translated the message if it was read in yeah. Dutch. So that isn't too false. Like I said, with the Morse code, the Morse code being unintelligible, it could be someone panicking, just hitting the button. It could be someone having some sort of seizure, something hitting the button, or legitimately just handshaking. I mean, if if, if you've walked over, if you've been told or even seen, all the officers and captain are dead, possibly all the crew is dead, you're sitting there in a radio room trying to tell the outside world this, you're not going to have steady fucking hands, are you? Hmm. Um, but triangle in the position, everything that's all fine. Was there anybody like? Was there anybody alive on the ship when they got there? Did you? Well, say? so that's that's all we'll getting next. All right, so okay. we've so, currently got the silver star so, going right. You're the closest. You're going there. So far, this all just sounds like sort of standard procedure. It it sounds like it could be. I know this is a bit stupid, but it could be wine. Mariners, stop being so Italian. Well, I've got a bottle in the fridge. Well, I was about to say French, but the French just sip it and then spit it out for a tasting. The Italians are the ones that drink it. But no, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, it could be Navy people... It's actually Spanish like, wine. A young person having a, having a joke, not realising the radio was on, but I highly doubt it. It could be... I don't know. So we'll, we'll keep for, going. We'll keep going. We'll keep going. For, for for radio man, where radio? <laughs> I don't know the exact layout of the ship. I don't know if it differs, but from what I've seen, I'm not navy. I'm gonna hand my put my hands up there. I don't know anything about ship layouts, but the ships that I have You're seen the layout, the, the the place where I have seen the layouts, the radio room is quite close to the control room. Right. So. It's, I the, would the believe... officers are usually not too far away because the, the you need to tell the person on the radio to send this or receive this quite quickly. I believe the radio would be in the control room or possibly on the bridge, depending on the ship. 
Uh, I think that you only take the whole radio room. a little alt. I, I believe that's mainly submarines because of the compact space. But I could be wrong again. I'm not a sailor. I don't know. I just, yeah. I, 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 I feel like so you. I know what you mean, and sometimes there are radio rooms. That's worth noting as well. Uh, but from what I gather, most big uh, ships, if you like, that I've seen in films, whether it's just done for the ease of a film or whether it's how it actually is, the radio is usually just like either in the control room or just on the bridge to the side of the way kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, I've, I've, communication post. I've seen a couple of things where people do tours of ships and stuff, but it's usually cruise ships. So they'll just have like a radio desk on the cruise ship on the bridge. Well, that's maybe what it is, yeah. I'm not too sure if on a military vessel it would be the same. I don't know whether they want to, would they would want to segment things so that it would be easier to hear radio messages or not. I don't know how they would work. Yeah. But let's just assume well, it's, it's not military. It's in the same a... room or close. It's a oh, where was that? Did did, did the Silver Stars an American merchant ship? It is. Ba, 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 ba. A Dutch freighter. A Dutch freighter. Right, so I'm going to assume the radio room is going to either be in the bridge or, like, sort of connected to it, like, very close to it. Because you would want to be able to give commands to the radio room and vice versa quite quickly, quite yeah. efficiently. You wouldn't want to have the whole Chinese whisper as you pass a message down the line. By the time it reaches someone, it's fucking gone. So I'm going to say... They're either going to be close or one and the other. So the radio room being able to say, look, all the officers are dead, makes perfect sense because they would probably just be able to go, yep. <laughs> with, <laughs> with, with, with all the all the crew assumed dead, I think if, you, if all the officers have randomly died for no fucking reason, I think it's safe to assume that you would assume possibly the crew are as well, especially if you if you take off your headset or whatever you've got in the radio room and there's just silence on the ship, or you can usually, rooms have windows, bridges have windows and stuff onto decks. You can yeah. usually see on the deck if there's movement. If people are just lying there still on the deck, you're going to assume whatever's affected your officers has affected the crew as well. Even if you just look down a corridor, if there's a corridor attached to your room, if you see people lying in the hallway, you're going to assume something's happened. Yeah. So, safe to assume. And also, if this person did say, I die, and then there was radio silence, so assuming they felt something, like there was something going on where they were getting lightheaded or anything like that, like they felt symptoms, then they would... It would be safe to assume if you're feeling the symptoms, other people are feeling the symptoms. So feeling the symptoms, so you're thinking it's something something going on in the air, some kind of chemical, some kind of gas, or it's um, something happening rather than it could be pirates attacking the ship and killing people. I am, because I'm thinking if there's an attack, there would be a mayday call before someone would go, all the officers are dead uh, and things like that. I assume there would be a mayday call made as soon as contact was made, or there would be some sort of communication or call for help, possibly. Well, uh, or is, at is, least is, informing is, a control centre. Is mayday not the ship sinking? So you think you're going to go down? Mayday is the ship sinking, but you can still give out like a call to help. You can still say, like, control tower. Emergency distress. Yeah. So the thing I'm going to say is, if everybody, you can see the captains and the officers are dead, you think the crew's dead, you think you're going to die, you'd still issue a mayday, it's still a state of emergency. If mayday doesn't specifically mean, as I wasn't sure, but I thought it did, mean that the ship is going to go down, 
like if a mayday doesn't just mean that and it just means object like outright emergency i need help now uh like like distress distress like emergency distress call then you'd issue a mayday call anyway true but the fact that he's managed to send out a radio call and give the detail like say the officers are dead these people are dead you would assume that if it was under attack or something, he would specify under attack or he would specify oh, like, contact made. I think the reason why he, it was just simply officers are dead, crew possibly dead, and then I die is more likely to do with chemical, um, something in the air, something in the water, something happening on the ship where it causes an issue and it's either gas or chemical or even just some sort of medical issue where they've all had they've all had to have a dose of a shot before going to wherever they were and then they've ended up contracting something or if there's just been a deficiency or something. I'm assuming there hasn't been like an old timey oh everybody's malnutritioned and stuff. I'm I'm not assuming that's gonna be the case. But I'm thinking possibly like <coughs> a a gas leaking or uh that's why I'm also thinking, is the radio room sealed? Because if the radio room is its own room and it's closed off, it could be sealed. The reason why he has died last and there's been radio silence, or assuming he's died last, is if he's been sealed away from whatever's happening. It's still seeped through, but it's taken longer. Because a lot of doors on ships are built to withstand water, assuming they can withstand some gases as well, trying to seep through for a little bit longer. Before you go on any more trailer thought, I'm going to stop you. Because we're okay. 17 minutes in, I've done two paragraphs, and you're waffling. I, I didn't say what's be- your thoughts. I didn't say tell us about your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, this thing, these are all my thoughts, because this is how I figure things so out. Some I'm, of them are going I'm to be holding... answered in a minute, dude. You just have to give us your general thoughts. It doesn't have to be detailed. You're fine. I get what you're saying. Right. I like details. Uh, like, is the radio room sealed? Is well, it a room? That's he didn't say that. He didn't say, help, I'm in a sealed room. Right, anyway. (laughs) Noting the terrified urgency in the message that came over the airwaves, the captain and crew of the Silver Star wasted no time changing the course in an effort to assist the apparently incapacitated ship. Uh, Within hours, the Silver Star caught sight of the Oorang Madan rising and falling in the choppy waters of the Malacca Strait. So let's just gloss over the fact that they said, it's a real emergency, we're going to get there straight away, and then found it within hours. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, um, the merchant craft neared the ill-omened vessel. The crew noticed that there was no sign of life on the deck. Uh, the Americans attempted to hail the Dutch crew to no avail. That's when the captain of the Silver Star decided to assemble a boarding party. As they left the safe haven of the Silver Star, these unfortunate souls had no idea what they were about that they were about to walk into a living nightmare. Okay. So, as soon as they boarded the Urang Madan, the men swiftly realised that the distress calls were not an exaggeration. The decks of the vessel were littered with the corpses of the Dutch crew. Their, all their eyes seemed to be wide, their arms were grasping at what seemed to be unseen assailants. Their faces were twisted and into revolting visages of agony and horror. Even the ship's dog was dead. Its once intimidating snarl was frozen into a ghastly grimace. So it's like everybody's frozen as though they were like trying to like fight something off fight or attack, like stop yeah. someone, hurt them, and kind of uh, like screaming in terror, and they kind of just died. Like when that that was it. Even the dog, as it was barking at someone. Yeah. Um, the 
Boarding party found the captain's remains on the bridge uh, and his officer's cadavers were strewn about the wheelhouse in the chart room. The communications officer was still at his post uh, and he was as dead as everyone else. His fingertips were still resting on the telegraph. All of the corpses, according to the reports, bore the same trifled, wide-eyed expression as the crew on the deck. So, it said still his finger was still on the telegraph. I'm guessing he was Morse coding. He Morse coded at the beginning of the message. They couldn't decipher yeah. some of it, and then at the end he'd said, I die. But I'm guessing there was a bit that they couldn't decipher. So maybe you're right. It was He was rushing, or he was... He wasn't leaving long enough pauses or dashes, and it was almost cold, and it kind of didn't make sense in that. Yeah. So maybe he started with a message. He was like, "Okay, are they the dead? Uh, I need some help, uh, you know." And then, like, really panicking, and then fucked it up, and then the court I die at the end. Yeah. So Possibly. maybe it didn't need to be translated. Pardon me, I do apologize. Um, below deck, search party members found. Uh, loads of corpses in the boiler room but was but as almost as disturbing as this grim find was the fact that the american crew members all reported to have felt an extreme chill in the air in the hold even though the temperature outside and in the boiler room was a scorching 110 degrees fahrenheit don't know what that is in celsius uh well the search team could see clear evidence that the crew of the Urang Madan suffered profoundly at the moment of their deaths. They could not fi- they could find no overt evidence of any injury or foul play on the swiftly decaying corpses, nor could they espy any damage to the ship itself. So what's your thoughts now? Okay, so the so winter the boiler room where it's 110 degrees Fahrenheit, but they said it's all felt really so, right there you go, so that's hot. And they've that's all said hot. it feels really cold, a really cold chill. Everyone else is like, as all well, they're fighting someone off, so you've got to hold someone, you fight, and then they're like, so, so it's almost like Pompeii when they run away from yeah. it and they get, they get like, uh, what do you call it? Like, um, the, they get frozen in time because of the yeah. ash and stuff, yeah. Yeah, so it's almost like that. Even the dog, um, the guy who shut out the distress call was still, the communications officer was still, he had his finger on the telegraph, was dead at his post, the same kind of expression. Uh, and when they had a look, they couldn't find any, like, stab wounds, wounds, bruise and any form of conflict on the bodies. Uh, they said they were decaying quite rapidly. Um, because it's only a matter of hours since this has happened and they couldn't find any damage to the ship itself. Alright, so my thought this, you're probably going to laugh at this because it's it, it's not influenced by the game but it sounds like it is a little bit, <laughs> right? That we were playing, right? Yeah. And this is this is one of my theories, <laughs> which is some sort of gas. There's lots of gases that can cause you to hallucinate if they escape if they're in too high quantities. My True. thought is that they've had some sort of hallucination or something has gone wrong with the gas to cause this. Where they have, they've been fighting for dear life, but they've been fighting nothing. Or like your captain said, like they said, the captain, his officers were, his their cadavers were strewn all over the place. Yeah. So they could have fought each other instead of fighting these things. So they could have been hallucinating that they were enemies to each other. But my thought is that there is a 
a gas of some sort which has leaked or some sort of overload of gases, something that has had too high pressure, whether it could be in the fuel that they've been doing or somewhere else where it's escaped, it's caused this hallucination and it's also caused the bodies to sort of seize up. Like, I don't know how it would happen, whether it would be like heart attacks or like extreme shock it could have been that all died from extreme shock from these things because there's been cases of people being in extreme shock and just seizing so one of my theories is that it's been hallucination some sort of gas or liquid or something on the ship has caused these terrible nightmares that have happened where they've been fighting off things and they've had just shock or something happened where they just seize up and they're frozen like that. So the next part of the story kind of goes along with a theory of gas builds up or something unusual. Okay. The captain of the Silver Star decided that they would tether themselves to the Orang Medan and tow it back to the port. So he got his boarding party off and he's decided, well, we'll tow it back. Yeah. We'll get proper I'm glad he got his boarding party off. Sorry, it, it's just because I feel like if the boarding party was getting the chills, I feel like that could be... It's still yeah. lingering. So, yeah. um, <laughs> as soon as the crew had attached the tow line and were happy that it was secure, the Dutch ship that they uh, uh, to the Dutch ship, uh, they noticed ominous billows of smoke seemed to be pouring from the lower decks. In specific, the number four holes. The boarding party scarcely had a chance to cut the tow line and make it back to the Silver Star at a safe distance before the Orang Medan exploded with such tremendous force that by eyewitness accounts was described as she lifted herself clean from the water and swiftly sank. The crew watched the Dutch vessel disappear beneath the briny depths, uh, no doubt uh, breathing sighs of relief that the tow line had not dragged them into the sea as well. The watery grave that claimed the Orang Medan effectively removed the freighter from the face of the earth and forced it directly into the realm of myths and legends. This, of course, made it one of the most enduring and intriguing maritime mysteries of the modern age, leaving us to ask the most basic question of what happened. Right, so the fact that it exploded... <clears throat> I don't know... I don't know why the ship would have this, but it's a freighter, so it could be transporting things. I don't know if this has the effect of being able to do that, but... Could there have been a gas such as helium on board in said storage bay where it's highly flammable, highly explosive, and it has the ability to literally take the wind out of your sails and fuck your body up if you inhale too much of it? Well, I'll carry on a little bit, and you we've touched on two separate main theories here. So one of the main theories is, is to do with something that was carried, and the other is to do with it was a gas, which okay. are two separate things, which you'll see soon, but they're both... Okay, I'm um, because so, they could have been carrying gas canisters if they were freighter. So yeah. Uh, so while rumours about the Silver Star's grisly discovery circulated widely on the trade routes of the East Indies, the first official account of published account of the event was printed on May of 1952, so about four or five years later, okay. in the form of Proceedings of the Merchant Maritime Council, which was published by the United States Coast Guard. The testimony therein described the alarming state of the Dutch crewmen even going so far as to state, and this is quote, their frozen faces were upturned to the sun, staring, as if in fear, the mouths were gaping open and the eyes staring. So, that that's the, that's the, the first official print account, account of it. 
that could mean two things in my mind. So upturned toward the sun could mean legitimately they were staring, they were looking up to the sky in terror at the, the sun or the sky. But it could also just be a very a fanciful. It could just be a very fanciful way of saying they were looking, looking up, up towards there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, the first problem with trying to ascertain what happened to this now infamous Dutch fate is the fact that there doesn't seem to be any official records that it ever existed in the first place. <laughs> we know that the Silver Star was real. Although by 1947 it had been reacquired by the Graceline Shipping Company, who dubbed the vessel Santa Juana, but there's no paper trail leading to the Orang Madan. Some researchers have speculated that if the Orang Madan was a genuine ship, that it likely hailed from Samara, which at the time was a colony of the Netherlands, uh, and obviously it was a Dutch ship, uh, yeah. in what was referred to as the Dutch East Indies, which was obviously a huge part of trade at that time. Uh, Urang is Indonesian for man, and Madan is the biggest city on the island of Samara, which would designate this enigmatic freighter the man from Madan. But while the etymology of the name might give some clue as to its origin, there is no bureaucratic records of the Urang Madan. Uh, author and historian Roy Bainton, who has done some of the most exhaustive and revealing investigation on the subject of the SS Urang Madan, met, de met a dead end after dead end in his pursuit of the true story of the death ship, as it was dubbed. <clears throat> the f uh, first, he went to, first he went to the unusual sources, but was unable to find any mention of the ship in the Lloyd Shipping Registers or Dictionary of Disasters at Sea between uh, 1824 and 1962. He then contacted the United Kingdom Admiralty. Yes, Kyle. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you. Go on. Uh... So I'm just thinking, do Dutch ships, especially civilian freighters, have SS designations? It did not say it was a civilian freighter, it was just a Dutch freighter. It well, was part if it, even of if it... the Dutch East Indies. It could be a military or commercial freighter owned by the Dutch government that is just used it on their trade routes from could the be. East Indies. Do they use the SS designation? They will. Sure? They would. They they would if it was part if it was part of the Dutch government or if it was part of the Dutch navy. Because each country seems to have a different one. Like the U.S. has USS. We have HMS. Yes. So Dutch is SS. Oh, it is SS. It right, is okay. SS. That, Second that, is that's not where the story comes and picked us at. Somebody accidentally gave it the wrong initials. <laughs> well, no. My, my thinking is one is it actually an SS? In which case, they could be looking in the like they could be. My thinking here is... It's an SS. It's not the SS. That's something different. I, I know, but the, 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 the thing <laughs> is, a lot of times, like, if it's been doing something such as running supplies undercover, it could... Okay. I'm not going to over-explain this time, but fake name, possibly fake name, ship is actually record, recorded as a different ship, but yeah. it's given that fake title for when it's doing this thing. So do, you're all about doing dodgy dealings, doing dodgy runs, moving stuff they're not supposed to be moving. Either doing that or doing it covertly. If it is for the military, it could be moving stuff that it doesn't want other nations to know that the military... That, like, That's fair enough. It doesn't want there to be a paper trail. 
That's fair enough, but the, the there are a lot really of military ships that move around and have the correct name and are correctly mapped, and everyone knows where they are, and everyone knows who they belong to, but the cargo is classified. Our Navy does it, the US Navy does it, it's been done for centuries, so oh. it doesn't make sense to hide the whole ship, but I get what you're saying. Also, because militaries have, have a habit of, oh, we'll take this ship and we'll just rename it, could it have just been where it's been taken and it hasn't had its name updated in registries? Uh, you'd still like expect it to be somewhere. You'd still expect it. Like, even if it was just like they literally changed the name of it there and then set off, you'd still expect someone to know about it and say, well, actually, this is what ship it is. That's for, or to that's be recorded. True. And if you're in the military, you would assume they would keep a record of, okay, the ship was this, it's now this, because they would need to keep a log of what ships they have. Exactly. And also, going off that, you'd expect to know, to be able to find the Dutch shipping records from that time and find out what ship disappeared from the service at that time and was either reported as a wreck or not. Depends on if they wanted it reported. There was a Russian submarine that went missing that the Russians insisted didn't go missing. Well, yeah, but I don't think the Dutch, after like 50 years, are still going, no, nah, <coughs> this one's, yeah, it's fine. It's sailing round. You just haven't seen it. It's uh, over there. <laughs> That's called Never this. Yeah. <laughs> they might have just hoped everybody forgot. So anyway, so he, he got loads of dead ends. He yes. fought the relative sources. He asked kind of about the colonies and stuff. Didn't get anywhere. So he then contacted us because as any wise person does, right? Something's yes. gone wrong in the world. You ask the British. Of course. We so are the he contacted of the, the United <laughs> Kingdom Admiralty, and specifically the Registrar of Shipping and Seamen and the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Yes, of course. Because why can't we just say the British Navy? We'll have to have a big fancy title for an office. Because we're the ones who have so many different. We've got like we don't just have officers. We've got a ten different types of officers specific to this type of job. And depending on which job you do, your title can change around. Um. So, and they told him that the only place to check Dutch shipping records was in Amsterdam. Was in the Dutch. Yeah, because why would we have them? We don't give a shit what the Dutch are doing. They're never really <laughs> a threat. Well, I mean. Not since the 15th century. Um, <laughs> Bless you. Being, well, the, uh, I don't know. Like There was that one time in the 1700s when they got fighty because the French did, and then we had to let America do what they want. And that's went bullshit ever since. So, you know, maybe they should have learned a lesson there. That's what happened. That's what happened. <laughs> Americans think they won independence. It was only because the Dutch and the French decided, you know what, they've got half their army over there. Why don't we go and attack them now? And we are not losing to the Dutch or the French, who are we are historical enemies of, and have kicked the arse off for thousands of years. We're not going to suddenly lose one. Hold on, we're calling the halfway across the world. So when all you army come back here and sort these out, you can do what you want over there. And yeah, then now, there. now look at America. Dutch knows the Dutch know they made a mistake. That's why the Netherlands don't get involved with us anymore because <laughs> they don't want to accidentally create a new America. If they just trap you, Cyprus gets away from them. I think that's Gibraltar. the best conspiracy theory I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> that the Dutch are ashamed of letting, letting, letting America do what they want. Yeah. Uh, anyway. <laughs> um, so, Bainton searched the Dutch records as well as the Maritime Authority in Singapore, but to no avail. Just as he was about to give up on his investigation and write the whole thing off, <clears throat> as uh, basically an old wives' tale, uh, he was contacted by are you ready? 
for a name, and you're going to guess the nationality. Okay. Dr. Theodore Searsdorfer. Dr. Theodore Searsdorfer. Searsdorfer. <laughs> yes. That has got to be in the Germanic area, either Bulgarian or German, or that has got to be in that area. I'm going to give you one guess as to where Professor Theodore Searsdorfer is from. Searsdorfer. Belgium. Just as he was about to write it off as an old wives' tale, Baton was contacted by Professor Theodore Searsdorfer of Eisen, Germany, who had been pursuing the case for the better part of 50 years <laughs> and was the first to reveal the names of the two American ships that had heard the Urang Madan's SOS calls. So it you hit it on the head too... and then wandered off. It's because it felt too obvious. Dude, he's called Searsdorfer. I mean, I could get how the Theodore threw you. No, uh, honestly, the Theodore was fine. It was just, it felt too obvious, you know? So it felt like it would be one of the smaller offshoots, like Belgium or Bulgaria or somewhere, you know? Somewhere where it has sort of weird, similar sort of sounding names, but isn't Germany. Is Bulgaria even near Germany? I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's on the border. My Bulgaria. joke is no good. Yeah. Bulgaria. Yeah. Are you thinking of Belgium? I'm thinking of both because Bulgaria for me sounds very Germanic. Bulgaria is further over to the right, man. It's like Middle East, not Middle East, uh, Eastern European. I need to learn my German history because for something in my brain <laughs> is telling me that the Germans went to Bulgaria and had a colony. Uh, Bulgaria, I believe, was a German colony at some point when Germany started taking over parts of Europe. In the early days, not in the World Wars. No, that, yeah, I'm thinking before the World Wars, back when it was just like the German Empire. Yeah. Yeah, they were quite a bit of Europe, the Germans, at, at some point. You see, my brain's screaming that Bulgaria... Yeah, so I'll brush up on my history at some point. Anyway. Uh, Seersdorfer also led Baton to a 32-page German booklet written in 1954 by Otto Meilke entitled Das Totenschiffen der Südsee, or The Death Ship in the South Sea. <laughs> of course. Uh, he seemed to know a lot about the Urang Medan's route, cargo, tonnage and engine power and even allegedly the captain's name. One is forced to wonder whether or not Milk had contact or mil mil Milk or Milky? Milky? I don't know. You're I the one in with... German. I know, but it's an odd name. It's like it's it's got. I don't know. It's just um, one of anyway. those. Anyway, yeah, it's just one of those. You're not really sure. Uh, I had a contact with one of the silver stars. Notoriously difficult to find crewmen. Milk's pamphlet was also the source of the June 1947 date and added yet another compelling piece of the puzzle, which helped reignite Bainton's interest in the project. This intriguing new bit of possible evidence was that the number four hold of the Urang Badan may have been filled with a pair of exceedingly lethal and highly illegal substances, according to Bainton. Quote from his booklet. There is a tantalising possible explanation as to her crew's demise and her disappearance from the records. Milky mentions a mixed lethal cargo on the Dutchman of Zion Carly, which is potassium cyanide, and right. nitroglycerin. Aha! Uh -huh. 
Two things because you definitely do not want to be transported. Why not put the potassium cyanide with the nitroglycerin? Nothing will go wrong. I'd see when it's choppy. That's a good idea. Yeah. Needless to say, this would be a dangerous enough concoction in a laboratory with the highest of safety protocols, but in a cargo hold on the rough seas, it was a potential nightmare. What? Did they know the dangers of nitroglycerin and cyanide back then? Like, the mixing them. I know they knew the dangers of cyanide and the dangers of nitroglycerin. Did they know the dangers of mixing them? I think if they had them in the hold of a ship together, at then some they point they have been stored together. So at some point, they know. I mean, even if it's just like, we know that nitroglycerin's a bit unstable, we know that potassium cyanide's a bit dangerous, we'll kind of put them next to each other in the docks because they're going on that ship together. At some point, something would have happened. Yeah, you would assume. Even if it's just people feeling sick while transporting them along the docks. Yeah. Or things uh, going boom so, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of boom uh, nitroglycerin. So obviously that might explain it, and it might it might explain the explosion. Even more terrifyingly, according to Bainton, is the conjecture that the Orang Madan may not may have been smuggling nerve gas, or even more insidious biological weapons manufactured by a sinister assembly of Japanese scientists whose experiments were so heinous that many of the atrocities perpetuated by the Nazis in the name of the science paled by comparison. This diabolical uh, faction was unassumingly referred to as the Illuminati? Dude, Unit 731. The Japanese experiment in the war. My brain doesn't remember that. <laughs> so, you know what I'm on about now, though? Yeah. Unit 731 and the, the experiments the Japanese did, which were worse than the Nazis, by the way. If anybody doesn't know that, you should research it. If your stomach can take it, it's pretty gruesome. Um, but it's it's thought that they may have been moving a biological weapon or nerve gas for Unit 731. Lovely. Which would explain why it's off records. Um, yeah. And if anyone doesn't know or doesn't realise how bad it was, it was nicknamed the Den of Cannibals by some people. Yeah, it's... Think Fallout Vaults, but worse... Yeah, so it does talk about that, but so one one theory is nitroglycerin and sodium was it sodium uh, potassium cyanide. cyanide potassium cyanide in the hold. Uh, yeah. Another theory was Unit Seven Thirty One biological weapons. There's a whole explanation on that. I'm not going to go into it because it talks all about Unit Seven uh, Seven Thirty One and what it was. Uh, that's for another day, but that's one of the things is that was moving stuff for them. There yeah. is a third theory, Kyle. A third theory. In 1953, Frank Edwards and Robert V. Hulse retold the basics of the legend for the Fate magazine in his 1955 book, The Case for the UFO. Oh, for fuck's sake. Astronomer, author, and noted Philadelphia experiment researcher Morris K. Jessup hypothesized that the crew of the Orang Madan may have been attacked by extraterrestrials for reasons unknown. Why does because it's Americans. If America can't explain something, they have to shoot it or blame it on the aliens. I mean, it would be more logical if a plane <laughs> went overhead and dropped the fucking gas on them. <laughs> For fuck's sake. Uh, Why is oh, everything a UFO? <laughs> Everything's a fucking UFO. 
They're playing the fucking Bermuda Triangle and fucking UFOs at one point. It's not. It's just because it fucks with your magnetic poles, magnetic fields because of tectonic plates and all. Fucking science, people. Science. Don't blame <laughs> shit on aliens without trying to figure out with science. I'm not finished with the aliens, so stop being angry. Enthusiasts have theorised that the unlucky Dutch crew may have had a Scooby-Doo-like run-in <laughs> with the vengeful... I don't think the guy who wrote this believes them either. Uh, with the no. <laughs> with uh, vengeful wraiths of the sea or a ghost ship full of surly undead pirates. The dubious proof which supports the paranormal option... Uh, the, oh, oh, sorry, which supporters of the paranormal option used to confirm their theory is the evident lack of a natural cause of deaths as well as purportedly petrified expressions etched on the faces of the doomed sailors. Add to this the unnatural chill in the cargo hold and the, the assertion that some of the deceased sailors were reaching up towards what was assumed to be an unknown adversary and you have all the ingredients of a hoary seafarer's tale. So or they you have, have went... All, or you have do you know what? We can't of... tell what killed them. It must have been aliens. Yeah. It's like, or you have all the ingredients of them being killed by a gas or a toxin or anything that science can't explain and reaching up for their fucking lives, <laughs> not just the fucking thing in the sky, just reaching up, begging for help or fighting off life and death and shit. There's been many cases of people being on the edge of death and then trying to fight off invisible things because they are fucking hallucinating at the edge of their life because they see the fucking light at the end of the tunnel and shit. <coughs> so, what? aliens, fucking... This, the summary of this paragraph but it tells me that the guy who wrote this doesn't believe him either. Yeah. This, is a, this is scant evidence indeed for a supposed interaction with either evil aliens or malevolent phantoms, but one can hardly blame yawn spinning mariners for trying to add a little spice to the story told around the campfires on stainy shorelines to wide-eyed children, or even novice deckhands. So if we presume for the moment that the paranormal is out, then we must be dealing with natural causes. So it moves on to the next theory. Um, so assuming that they were caused by... If you rule out the moving weapons for Unit 731 or transporting dangerous cargo uh, dodgily, uh, and yeah. obviously you don't believe the thing, the bullshit, then it could be a mishap involving what a lot of people believe is methane bubbles. So perhaps the most fear-provoking theory preferred by those who believe that the demise of the Dutch freighter was explicable by natural remains, uh, means is that the crew of the Orang Madan was asphyxiated by clouds of noxious methane that gurgled up from a fissure on the sea floor and poisoned the sailors before eventually engulfing the ship. As terrifying as the thought of random bursts of methane destroying vessels after killing the crew may be, this explanation seems far-fetched, as it does not account for the thunderous blast described by the crew of the Silver Star. So if it wasn't methane bubbles that were responsible, then maybe it was something else. So what this is theorised is a methane fissure, which is a thing that happens. Yeah. Uh, maybe a huge one ripped open. Just as the ship was there, or as they were sailing towards it, sailed through and not realising because methane is a natural gas and it's colourless. colourless. Yeah. Uh, and they start to asphyxiate, hallucinate, like you're saying. Maybe not even hallucinate, maybe just the asphyxiation of the, <gasps> of the can't yeah. breathe, you know. Um, so yeah, that's what, that's, that's what the My, most logical people theorize. The, the thing with the 
So you see what the I song, said? How you, uh, how I said it could have been there was a mix of transport and dodgy stuff and gases yeah. that you said. This is stupid, and it might be possible, might not be, but the not being able to explain the explosion or the ignition. Could it not just be that the people who died in the engine room ended up knocking something or doing something and they're just the pressure built up in the valves or something like if they've been working in the engine room and they've ended up knocking something that has raised the pressure or done something to the engine or part of the controls, could that have not built up and caused the explosion? Well, I'll, I'll move on to my next one because my next one's just a short theory, but it is of that that very thing of it was an accident, it was a human error, as it was a boiler fire. Author Vincent Gaddis, in his 1965 book Invisible Horizons, put forward the premise that an unobserved fire or failure in the ship's boiler system may have been responsible for the demise of the vessel. He claimed that carbon monoxide could have easily leaked up, causing the deaths of all aboard. While the fire slowly grew, eventually igniting the fuel and causing the craft to explode. While this is a sound theory, uh, perhaps the truth seems even simpler than a fire or a maintenance error. So that's what he thought. Yeah, like uh, a simple maintenance error. Right. What is it called? It's something dioxide, but it's caused by... You can get it by a malfunction in an engine where it just pumps out too much gas. Carbon monoxide. You're thinking of that. carbon monoxide. It's colourless, it's odourless, it's tasteless, you don't know anything about it and it'll kill you. Could that cause an explosion if something yes. sparks it? Yes. So them going on the ship, leaving the ship, something with them leaving the ship and towing it causes a spark with the carbon monoxide, which has caused the deaths and caused the asphyxiation. Something causes a spark, causing it to blow up while they're... T- because they try to move it, don't they? They try to move the ship, they try to they, tow it away or something. Well, not necessarily. They, they tow a tow line to it, at which point they notice a lot of smoke coming out of it. They fuck, that's not right. So they cut the tow line, start to move their ship away, then it explodes. So they didn't right. make contact or do anything particular with it. So it could have just been that something was on like a very slow burn, or something caught the sun causing a burn, or something. But carbon monoxide is deadly and explosive so a fault with the engine i'm sure there's been other cases of ships falling to carbon monoxide poisoning or deaths via fire from carbon monoxide mm-hmm. um so, so that, that one feels like the most normal to me there's also what a lot of people believe it to be which is a hoax uh, despite Baton's preposition that the records may have been eradicated by a savvy group of governmental conspirators, the fact are there are no registration records for the Orang Medan remains a troublesome detail. Combine this with the reality that no survivors of the Silver Star have ever felt compelled to come forward and tell their harrowing tale, and all that you've got are the earmarks of a good old-fashioned story concocted by sailors well away along as at sea. There have been stated... Uh, that having been stated, the fact that the United States Coast Guard seems to have confirmed the tale and that other noted nautical authors have invested so much time and resources in availing themselves of the truth uh, lends the uh, lends an aura of credibility to the whole proceeding. So there's always the the Urang Madan. There's no actual records of it that anyone will find. Um, so a lot of people think it's just a load of shit. But there's a lot of credible sources published about it. Why would they? If it wasn't true, why why would the U.S. Coast Guard Publish something in a maritime book if it wasn't a genuinely believed true tale. 
only what? four years, three, four years after it was originated. So it's not like it's had time to build up as a ghost story over centuries. One, because it's America. Hmm. Two, because it's America. And the other thing is, none of the crew of the Silver Star have come forward and spoke about it. Okay, fair enough. That that makes it seem like, well, maybe you could say nothing happened because somebody would have said something. But at the same time, if you'd went on there and you were absolutely fucking terrified, yeah, there's PTSD been shit. yeah, there's there's been loads of cases of people knowing that somebody's been through something traumatic, and they've never spoke about it till the day they died. Exactly, and it could very well be that the people on the ship just decided, right, okay. Nobody speaks of this. We forget this happened. We do not want anything to do with this. Yeah. Like the, the sailors are notoriously superstitious. They might have believed that something would befall them, so they decided we're not going to speak of this. We're not going to say anything about this. We're just going to leave. We're just going to ignore this ever fucking happened. So what? What do you think? I think there are many plausible causes that, if they have been. If the if it was indeed a military ship transporting either the seven three one gases or the uh, or the mix of chlorine and nitroglycerin, I mean, I don't feel like someone would be stupid enough to do that. But maybe if they weren't told, if they were just told you're transporting these, um, someone on some level would have known that you don't put nitroglycerin and potassium cyanide in the same hold. Correct. However, there have been cases of cargo being put wrong things. There's the mistakes can happen on manifests and things like that. There's wrong stick I could have been put on. Anything could have happened. The monoxide poisoning or something going wrong with the engine, I think, is highly plausible. Especially if, like, it's if it's an older ship. Like it doesn't say how old the the ship is, but if it's an older ship, especially, it could have issues. It could have had leaks or something going on. A lot of ships have patchwork. It could have just been a patchwork issue. Um, I definitely don't think it's the UFOs. That's just fucking out the window straight away. Uh, I feel like it is something to do with hallucinations or something. If when it stated that the captain and the officers had cadavers everywhere, that usually means like they've had guts go flying, they've had a fight, something's happened with them. No, cadavers just a dead body, man. Uh, we, for some reason, I always take cadavers as like there's blood and gore and stuff. No, no. Cadavers is just a body. It's just a way of saying a dead body. Corpses, cadavers. Yeah, I feel like it's either asphyxiation and it's them reaching out for breath type thing or it is some sort of hallucinogenic effect which many gases can cause which is yes also caused the asphyxiation but has caused them to be in this manner in this shape i feel like the radio room i, f- I feel like if the radio guy has been in a sealed room or just he's been affected by it the least it explains how he's managed to get a signal out he- how he's managed to do this but also how he's been found frozen on the telegram literally as if he's try- still trying to send the message yeah so so I'm, I'm pointing it towards some sort of gas basically some sort of gas whether it's natural man-made a mixture of chemicals just some sort of gas that is asphyxiated or shut down their bodies so i think there's a, a step that has to be taken 
that I, I, I was going to say I'm surprised nobody has, but I understand why nobody has. Is the first thing is to prove that it's not a hoax that was real. Is you need to go find the ship. Now the reason probably nobody has is because there's no exact location. It's just a general area, and it's a huge area of sea. Uh, however, I would argue that with modern day technology, with being able to sonar map the sea floor and stuff like that, um, I think we, should, we would be able to yeah, find it. A long way down. I think there should be a good chance that if you go, you comb that area for long enough, you'd spot some stuff that could be a shipwreck and get divers to find out, or cameras even, remote soaps or whatever. Um, I believe um, once that's discovered, because I do, I do think it's real. I don't think it's just a random combination of dangerous chemicals. I don't, or, or whatever. I don't think it would have been that. I would have thought it could. But I don't see it being some kind of dangerous chemical or mustard gas or biological weapon from Unit 731. I just don't see it. Why would the Japanese not use their own ship for that? Yeah. You know? And I doubt the Dutch was buying chemical weapons straight after the Second World War. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I, 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 that's that's sort of the least likely situation in my what's mind most likely... Yeah, I think there's a small possibility it could be a natural gas fissure, uh, methane gas. But I think what's most likely is there has been some kind of leak. There has been some kind of carbon monoxide or more likely carbon dioxide issue. Um, yeah. And maybe the chills are because they're breathing it in. They're starting to get lightheaded. They're like, you know, kind of, and then they have to get back out. Once you get back out into fresh air, as long as you're not passed out or anything, and your lungs recover, you're not going to suffer any side effects, really. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it, does say, um, it does say that they've been investigating the ship, and then they make their way to the engine. Yeah. By that time, they would have inhaled quite a lot of it. Yeah. So, but then you could you couldn't you could assume that they must have been having issues over hours, because if you had time to go onto a ship's deck, wander on downstairs, go to the bridge, find all the captain and everybody, go into the cargo holds, you know, wander around there go up and then go into the engine room and think, wow, this is fucking bad, which is where the main source would have been, then come all the way up and back out, if it was enough to kill them within even half an hour, you'd be dead by then. Easy. The question is, though, was it one search crew? Because it could entirely be that multiple search crews, one one was search crew and like specialist engineers type thing where you, you send a couple of engineers to go and check the engine room you send some people to check the cargo bay you send some people to check the bridge and it's they they've went found all these things come back they've combined the reports but the people who went to the engine room were the ones who felt the worst from it because they've had to travel the furthest and then come back up i would, I would argue that that would still have to be a good 15 20 minutes on a big ship on a big ship, but how one, how how big is this freighter? Two, what's the most direct route to the engine room? Well, I mean, it's a freighter, it's quite big, but in general, to move big. around a big ship. And the other thing as well is, Kyle, that, you know, it's carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide you, from the boiler you, room you, or whatever. You, you, won't, you won't want to be touching anything either, so you would be taking it slow. So yeah, yeah, no, all these people, everybody's going a bit mad, everybody's dying, there's not one person that's outside, or there's not one person that wanders out to some fresh air or something. There's not one person that thinks, oh, I'm a bit lighter at all, I need to go and get some fresh air rather than just sitting yeah. there and dying. So it would have to be a large volume. So the only way I can explain it like that is 
there is a something happens there's a fault it becomes more pronounced there is a huge volume of it comes up and it just kills everyone within about five ten minutes they don't really have time to react with they don't know what's going on um then it kind of dissipates over the hour or so that the next crew come along and there's a lot lower concentration in there which is possible yeah yeah there's no, and then it's nothing... just a boiler explosion Nothing on the on a ship is completely airtight sealed as as much as the try, unless you're on a submarine, it's not airtight sealed. Yeah. So it, it would seep out, it would eventually disperse. And like you said, it might take an hour or two. It might take a while, but it would still disperse. Anyway, we need to move on to the body on the beach. The body on the beach, indeed. Also known as the Summer Summerton Man or the Taman Shud case. Right. Okay. On the morning of December the 1st, 1948. Pardon me. Oh, hold on. Should we go? All right. Okay. On the morning of December the 1st, 1948, a body was found on the shore of the Summerton Beach. A man was resting with his back against a seawall, slumped forward, a half smoked cigarette lying on his lapel. He was well dressed, in a suit, with shined and heeled shoes, odd attire for a beach on a summer's day. There was no sign of any violence or a struggle, and the man carried no identification of any kind. Okay. The police immediately assumed the man had died of natural causes while taking a stroll on the beach. With no missing persons reports matched the body when, what, that they'd found, they were forced to investigate the matter further. Each clue they found only led to more questions. In the 65 years since the mysterious body was found on the beach, no one has come any closer to discovering the identity of the man, what he was doing at the beach that day, or how he died. Popular theories include a man ending his life in despair after losing his lover and a son, or a spy linked to secret codes and mysterious poisons. With so much evidence lost or destroyed over the decades, and everyone close to the case now deceased, it seems unlikely we will ever know the truth. So. So, um, the, the police saw a sharply dressed man who had polished shoes and decided, I've taken a beach stroll and fallen over and died. I actually have an image here to share with you. I feel like this is one of those things where it could be a million things, such as he's jumped out of a plane, he's been on a ship and washed up ashore, he's had all sorts happen. So yes, he is very smartly dressed. I know there are cases of people going, walking around uh, places with suits on, like walking around beaches with suits on. I mean... The old-timey dress was... Your casual dress was a suit. But... I do this feel like if, for, if, yeah. if you're going to have that... Polished... Like, you said his shoes were polished, like, pristine. Yeah. If you're well, going to go I, to that lens, you're not going to walk on a beach. So that's in your initial mind. thoughts. That's your initial thoughts, but I'm going to go because this gets really strange really quickly. Uh, okay. Literally, it's it's literally what to say. The more that you answer, the more questions are asked. Or the more investigated. So, at 7pm on November the 30th, 1948, John Bain Lyons and his wife were taking an evening stroll on Summerton Beach, a small seaside resort just outside of Adelaide, Australia. They noticed a man lying against a seawall about 60 feet away from them. Legs crossed in front of him, he lifted his right arm weakly before dropping it back onto the ground. The couple assumed it was just a drunk, drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette and continued on their way. Because what do you do when you're not sure of someone? You leave them to die and assume they're pissed. 
Around 7.30pm, another couple walking along the seawall saw a man in a similar position. This time, they both noticed that the man was not moving at all, despite the mosquitoes swarming his face. The man joked that he must be dead to the world to ignore the bugs, but the couple also assumed he was simply in a drunken stupor and moved on. He was just passed out this completely is just, fucked beyond his this mind. Is just this is just Australia. Australia. This is Australia for you. Insects are eating his face. Nah, he's just pissed, mate. Common in Australia, I suppose. Uh, in 1959, a third witness came forward to share a never-before-revealed story. He had been on the beach in the in the early hours of the morning and seen a man carrying another unconscious man over his shoulder, heading towards the spot the Samaritan man was found. As this was as as it was dark, he could not describe either of the men. It's unknown whether this had anything to do with the case, because none of the other witnesses uh, saw the face of the man lying on the beach at night. It's possible that he was a different man, and the Samaritan man's body was actually. Uh, and the summit man's body was actually carried to the beach much later that night. There had been no signs of convulsions or vomiting at the scene, which are common results of poisoning, so it seemed plausible that the man had died elsewhere and been carried to the beach. Uh, so somebody else came forward and said they'd seen them carrying, somebody carrying someone, but it was thought that it was totally the wrong time. Right. But how accurate is your timekeeping when you're on a well, beach and you're just passing by? John Lyons, the same man who had seen the body during the evening stroll with his wife, returned to the beach the next morning for a swim. He met with a friend after his swim, around 6.30am. They noticed a cluster of people on horseback near the seawall where the body had been the night before. Approaching the group to investigate further, Lyons realised something was wrong when he saw the body in the same position as the night as before. He immediately called the police. So if you find the man dead, he's just pissed. Unless you find him twice and then he's dead. Unless you find him twice... And there's people swarming round his body, not just insects. Yeah. Uh, details about the body are: he was five foot eleven, he had grey eyes, his hair was a mousy ginger colour, greying around the sides and receding in the front. He was estimated to be between forty and fifty years old. He was uncircumcised. He weighed between one hundred and sixty-five and one hundred seventy-five pounds. He was missing 18 teeth, including his two lateral incisors, which were most likely never grown in due to a genetic defect that he had. He had small scars on his left wrist, left forearm, and left elbow. His hands and feet were clean and callous-free, indicating that he did not do manual labour. Yes. One, why is it important that he's uncircumcised? <laughs> that's the first thing I thought, I thought that's really weird, but then I thought at least if you're putting up a missing person thing, you're pretty much saying he's not Jewish. So you're narrowing it down a bit. True, but <laughs> one who checked <laughs> to, to the like, people on horseback. It's not your priority. <laughs> Two. So he he was in a suit. He was well kept, well kempt, but he was missing teeth. He had cuts up and down him. No, 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 no. He had small scars on his left wrist, left forearm, left elbow. Left scars wrist, for left previous forearm, injuries. Left yes. elbow. So yes. it could have just been that he was previously in an accident and damaged and hurt his left arm a bit, or whatever. Possibly uh, I mean, more defensive wounds or something. But the fact, the fact that like he's this well-dressed man who is trying to puff on a half-done cigarette. So he's obviously managed to light it, and he's, he's managed to wave at a couple of people while being on the beach, which means I doubt he's washed up, 
because one, he's puffing on a cigarette that isn't. He's not washed up. We know that. Yeah. Uh, they assumed that he'd been carried there unconscious, but anyway, it moves on from that, so we'll we'll keep going. Uh, the body was taken by ambulance to the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Doctor John Barclay Bennett examined the body. He proclaimed that the time of death to be no sooner than two a.m. based on the stage of rigor mortis. Uh, this time of death, though, has since been questioned as poison affects the process of rigor mortis if there was poison present. Yeah. Uh, his report listed the cause of death as heart failure, possibly caused by poisoning. The items in the man's possession were also catalogued and are as follows. One unused train ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach. A used bus ticket from Adelaide to Glenelg. How do they know pack, if it's you? Oh, yeah, it's stumped. A pack of juicy fruit chewing gum. Some Brian and May matches. An aluminium comb. A pack of Army Club cigarettes containing seven cigarettes of another more expensive brand called Kenzitas. The man was smartly dressed in a suit and heeled shoes, but the maker's labels had been snipped out of all the clothes. He was wearing a, a knit pullover and a double breast coat, which is strange attire for a summer beach trip. He was also missing a hat, which was strange for 1948. One pocket of his trousers had torn and had been neatly repaired using orange thread. So he was smartly dressed and he was wearing nice attire, but the labels of the attire were cut out. And the he wasn't wearing a hat, been, which was a really The pocket unusual. had been repaired. He wasn't wearing a hat because everybody wore a hat, so they could don the hat. He had, he had cigarettes of a higher quality in a lower quality box. Yes. Which there I is a theory as to that that comes up later. A bit strange, yeah. As if they've been presented there or something, but... I don't know, his possessions aren't so strange other than the cigarettes, but the fact that his clothes are like that make me think that like, they're not his or they're like second-hand or something, so the labels have been cut out, or... That becomes stranger as well. Right, okay. Uh, a full autopsy the following day revealed more detail. The man's leg muscles were noted as unusual during the autopsy. They were very high and toned, and his feet were oddly pointed. Expert witnesses suggested that he had often worn heeled and toed, uh, sorry, heeled and pointed shoes, perhaps as a ballet dancer. It was okay. also noted that his pupils were smaller than normal. His spleen was three times its usual size and firm. The liver was uh, distended with congested blood. His stomach was cut. His stomach contained more blood, along with the remains of a pasty. These observations had strengthened the poisoning hypothesis, but lab tests revealed no traces of any known poison. The pasty was also tested and came back negative. The attending pathologist, John Dwyer, was astounded that nothing was found. Thomas Cleland, the coroner, later suggested that there were two deadly poisons that decomposed in the body in a very short time, leaving no trace. Digitalis and strophanthin. Either could have been used in this case and decomposed before the autopsy was performed. Okay. So the autopsy was over 24 hours later, so there was two poisons noted that could have gotten any system, killed him, and then drain like, broke down Yeah. before. And it's 1940s technology, so it's yeah. not it's not the height of being able to look at 
molecular levels and all that sort of shit. You're no, not but be you'd, be, to... you'd be able to detect poison in the stomach or in the blood unless it was either worn through or it was a, something that didn't exist yet. Yeah, that, that's the issue. It could have been a poison that wasn't known very well. Yeah. Uh, it was becoming evident that this was not a simple case of man dying of natural causes while vacation on the beach. Police took a full set of fingerprints, circulated them throughout the English-speaking world to no avail. The photos were published in an all Australian in all Australian newspapers, and a slew of relatives of missing persons were brought in to identify the body. Nobody could. The man did not seem to exist in any official records, nor did he have anyone looking for him who was willing to come forward. So all leads seemed exhausted. Yeah, it sounds more so, and more like someone trying to get rid of him. The first major lead pops up. Okay. Police decide to expand their search efforts as no one who recognised the photo had came forward because the man was not dressed for the weather or the location. They assumed he had been travelling. A car, a, a call for abandoned property was sent to every hotel, dry cleaner, railway station, bus station and lost property office in the area. The very next day, the police received their, fir- received their first break in the case um, in discovering the man's identity. A brown suitcase had been de- deposited uh, to the Adelaide Railway Station's cloakroom on November the 30th and never picked up. It was now January the 12th. So, so nearly two months Quite later. a time. Yeah. And the property was considered abandoned. Because so much time had passed, the staff remembered nothing about the person who had dropped it off. However, a search of its contents, contents yielded a promising item. A reel of a rare orange barber thread not found in Australia was among the items in the suitcase. This thread was then found to be a perfect match for the orange thread used to repair the unknown man's trouser pocket. Between that unlikely match and the luggage being dropped off on the day before the body was discovered, it seemed almost certain that the suitcase had belonged to the summoned man. Further investigation, however, was disappointing. A label had been torn off of the suitcase to hide its origin. Tags and labels had been removed from all but three of the pieces of clothing and the tags left bore the name T. Keen. But a search revealed no missing person with that name. The police concluded that those tags were left on knowing the dead man's name was not T. Keen, and they therefore would not reveal anything they found, although it was noted that they were also the only labels that could not be removed without damaging the clothing. Also noteworthy in the suitcase was a stencil kit that could have been used for stenciling cargo on merchant ships, a table knife that had been sawed down, Airmail cards that indicated he was sending communications abroad, a coat with stitch work uh, that was identified as American in origin, uh, and these items indicated someone who had travelled, most likely on a merchant vessel, um, but shipping and immigration records revealed no leads. Discovering the suitcase did clear up a few details about the summit man's final day, however. He must have gone to the train station and purchased the ticket to Henley Beach that was found in his pocket. Records showed that he, he, that the public baths in the station were closed on November the 30th, so the summit man must have uh, must have inquired as to where he could freshen up, being told that the facilities were closed and being sent to the public baths half a mile away. He headed to the facilities to shower and shave, but the extra walk had caused him to miss his train. He then decided to take a bus rather than wait for the next train, and bought the bus ticket to Glenelg. Pardon me, that was also found in his pocket. This all happened around 11am on November 30th, meaning there were now eight hours to account for between him leaving the train station and first being spotted on the beach. Uh, there's a photo as well of the suitcase and its contents. 
Yep, of course. Um, if I do it in an angle, it shows you. Yes, very good. Nice trick. <laughs> um, so the items in the suitcase were a dressing gown and cord, laundry yes. bag with the name Keen written on it, mm-hmm. one pair of scissors in a sheath, one knife in a sheath, which was a cut-down table knife, one stencil brush, two singlets, two pairs of underpants, one pair of trousers with dry cleaning marks and a $6 coin in the pocket, one sports coat, one coat shirt, one pair of pyjamas, one yellow coat shirt, one singlet bearing the name Keen with no A on the end, one singlet with the name torn out, one shirt without the name tag, six handkerchiefs, one uh, piece of light board, eight large envelopes and one small envelope, two coat hangers, one razor strap, one cigarette lighter, one razor, one shaving brush, one small screwdriver, one toothbrush, toothpaste, one glass dish, one soap dish containing a hairpin, three safety pins, one front and back collar stud, one brown button, one teaspoon, one broken pair of scissors, one card of tan thread, one tin of tan boot polish, two airmail stickers, one scarf, one towel, and an unspecified number of pencils, mostly Royal Sovereign brand, three pencils were H. Right, so it's, it sounds like very much he's brought enough to be fine for quite a few days without having to clean his clothes or anything. He's, he's, brought, he's had some clothes recently dry cleaned, but he's obviously packed for a long stay. But he's also, he's also packed tools and equipment as if he's expecting to need to do either some work or some sort of maintenance or something, unless he's just very paranoid and carries a screwdriver with him everywhere he goes. So this is this is the thing, right? So <laughs> it, it sounds like it, all the labels have been out as if he didn't it, want to be identified. It sounds like he could be a craftsman trying right. to find new work and trying to go to a new land, but also trying to not be himself. Yeah. All the labels like, have been cut out as if he didn't want to be identified or somebody didn't want to be identified. Yeah. But there was three left in and they were all said T Keen. Right? Yeah. There's three things that had T Keen. Now, they were the ones that you would have had to damage the clothing to get the label off. Which if he was gonna go and kill himself, why wouldn't he have just done if he didn't want to be identified? And then they ran they had a look and went, Well, there's nobody missing the name of T Keen, so it's obviously being left there knowing that that wouldn't identify him. That could but, be donated clothes or hand-me-downs or something do, if he didn't want to... I'm thinking on a different level. Okay. The coat is of American origin, and they already know this. The The orange thread is a rare barber thread that is not found or sold in Australia, and they know this, and they know he repaired his pocket with it. So is it not safe to assume at this point that he is American and that he's possibly called Taykeen? So if you get in touch with America and say, are you got any missing persons by the name of Keen, may he have shown up? Possibly, yes. Because they just looked at shipping records and, and flight records and went, well, there's nothing about a T. Keen on there. He may have used a different name to get on a ship if he wasn't supposed to be on it. Yeah, and if he's been cutting out his name, he might not want that name to be known. So he might, one, he might use a different name, or two, he might have been a story or something. 
if he's got if he's got screwdrivers and stuff like that, he could have gotten on a ship saying, "Look, I'll just do repairs and stuff." I'll like they even said like stencil kit for things that could be used on cargo. He could have legitimately come on and stenciled his own fucking stencil on a cargo crate or something, and went inside the bastard, screwed yeah. it up. It's a good point. It's a good point, and consider that. Should we carry on? Yes. Although the suitcase was an exciting find, it did little to help identify the man. Months went by with no new leads until John Cleland, professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, was brought in to re-examine the body in April 1949, four months after the body had been discovered. But this is where the case took its most perplexing turn of all. Cleland discovered a previously unnoticed small pocket that was sewn and hidden in the waistband of the man's trousers, most likely intended to hold a pocket watch. Uh, the pocket contained a tightly rolled piece of paper. Inscribed on the paper in an elaborate font were the words, words Tamam Shud, right, which is T-A-M-A-M-S-H-U-D. Newspapers misprinted it as Taman Shud, with an N on the end, uh, and the misprint is stuck through the air, so it's known as the Taman Shud case, but it's but Tamam. It's tamam Shud. Or Tamam, because it's got a on the air. Uh, a police reporter for the Adelaide Advisor, Frank. That's brilliant for a podcast, by the way. If anybody's not watching, it's got a, it's got one of the dashes on the air, an accent on the air. <laughs> uh, a police reporter for the Adelaide Advisor, Frank Kennedy, instantly knew what the rec- what the words meant. A 12th century book of poetry uh, called the and I apologise if I butcher this, but the Rub the Rubaiyat of Omar Kayam. Possibly, or something like that, if you know what it's meant to be, had become quite popular in Australia during the war, especially a translation by Edward Fitzgerald, which is uh, the Taman Shud, was a Persian phrase that closed the final page of the book, loosely translated to It's Ended or The End. Okay, so he's got a little roll of paper that literally just says The End on it. Yeah. Why so do this... all these unsolved mysteries have fucking I die or the end or shit? <laughs> I don't Who is leaving? <laughs> if I ever fucking die, you're planting on my body a message that just says, fuck it, I die. Hold on, so have I accidentally found a serial killer that's going around killing people but letting them have a final word? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's letting them have two final words and people are choosing I die and the end. <laughs> yeah. Um... So, obviously, people were like, did he commit suicide? Was this bit of paper a final message? Uh, it did seem to indicate that the man had known in some way that November 30th would be his last day. Um, all identification had been removed from his person and his possessions. He had taken the time to hide the message on his body. Uh, Kayam's poems all dealt with romance, life and mortality. Had the summit man killed himself after suffering a broken heart? The, the case seemed closer then ever to a resolution, a suitcase had been found, his movements were somewhat known, and it appeared that he may have planned his death. But the true twist was about to be revealed, because this oh, isn't the strangest thing that happens here. Awesome, bring it. I like twists. Police began searching libraries and bookshops for a copy of the Rubiat, with some with the same fancy typeset on uh, seen on the scrap of paper. Nothing turned up. The search was broadened to include publishing houses and eventually extended worldwide. Uh, it looked fruitless, but on July the 23rd, 1949, the book was finally found. A man from the town of Glenelg, 
where the man was found, slightly north of Summerton Beach, bought a copy, brought a copy of the book to Adelaide Police Station. The final page, which had contained the phrase, Taman Shud, was torn out. The font perfectly matched the dead man's scrap of paper. Testing revealed that the scrap of paper matched that used in the book. Uh, the Glenelg man explained that just after the body had been discovered on December the prior year, he and his brother-in-law had gone for a drive in a in, in a car he kept parked near Summerton Beach at the time. They found a copy of the, the Rubiat in the back seat of the car, but both just assumed that the other had left it there and without thinking through the glove compartment without another thought. It wasn't until a news report mentioned the police search for the book that the man realised that he might be holding key evidence. So, that's suspicious. <laughs> that's suspicious, and also, like, if this guy's torn a page out of this book, one, how the fuck's it ended up in the backseat of his car? Two, surely you would look at the book, and one of you would comment on the book, even if it's just in passing going, oh, nice book, or oh, what's what's the book that you've got, or something like that. Usually people comment on this. Yeah, because it's someone's car. If I got into your car and you moved something off the backseat, I wouldn't say anything. It's your car, it's your shit, it's certainly how it do me. But if you got into my car and I saw something there that wasn't there before, or I saw you move something off the backseat, a book that I hadn't put there, I'd go, what the fuck are you doing that way? Where's that from? Yeah, exactly. That's my car. I know it's not meant to be there. I don't just assume you've put it there. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, having the unknown man's copy of the Rubiat, from which he had torn his hidden message, was an exciting break, but seemed to offer little help. Detectives looked for another copy of the book, but none seemed to exist in the world. Uh, they now knew it was published by a New Zealand chain called Whitcomb and Tomes, but an inquiry revealed that Whitcomb and Tomes had never published a book in that format. They did publish a similar version with the same cover, but it had a squarer format font. No other publishing house in the world published anything that was a closer match. Uh, where had this man obtained this unique copy of such a popular book? So it's almost like it was a printing error to me. Like it was a like it was an experiment. Like this this house published one, wasn't happy with the font, changed it very slightly, and then that's what they went out as, and this is the only one that's I had. It could be could be that. It could be, like you said, it could be the Tesson one. It could legitimately just be like someone making a custom copy of the book, but you reusing the cover and stuff. People still do that today, where yeah. you you make you do the book, but you make like yourself a custom copy. You keep the cover and stuff because you like the cover, but you make a custom font and stuff for it. Well, it's time to move on and learn about the nurse, the code, and the army officer. Right. Okay, Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean. Wasn't satisfied. What a name. <laughs> Wasn't <Detective> satisfied. <laughs> LL. Wasn't satisfied that the book contained no additional clues. He examined it closer. There were two telephone numbers listed in the back cover. He saw the faint impression of other letters, as though someone had written on the final page of the book, uh, the page containing the Taman shoot, before tearing it out. UV light was used to make out what was written. There were five lines of letters, with the second line crossed out, but it appeared to be a code of some sort. Uh, starting at the beginning, the police called both numbers listed in the book. One belonged to a bank and provided absolutely no leads. The second belonged to a nurse who lived very near the summit beach. Okay. The police agreed to protect her identity, and for many decades she was known only as Jeston. Uh, but eventually it was revealed that her name had been Jessica Thompson. So, <laughs> not very sneaky. <laughs> 
Surely they could have called her like Diana or so- something completely <laughs> different, not Jessica. Because you're called Jessica Thompson. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's almost like a compressed version of Jess and Thompson. Just yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Jessica was very reluctant to speak with the police and they seemed reluctant to press her for deals. She was, at the time, living with a man who she would later marry. She was very worried about a scandal rising, perhaps because of a romantic affair she'd had with some man and kept hidden from her soon-to-be husband, or perhaps because of links to government intelligence programmes and spy networks. It was undetermined at the time. Okay. Regardless of her reason for keeping quiet, she denied any knowledge of the case, but did admit giving a copy of the Rubiat to a man named Alfred Boxall. Jessica had been an army nurse during the war, and Boxall, an officer. She gave him the book when they met in an army hospital, and had inscribed it with one of the verses of poetry that she signed her nickname with, Jeston. So they didn't want to, you know, protect our identity by putting a nickname that everybody knows around in the newspaper. Yeah, of course. Well done, police. Well done, police. Fuck's sake. So everybody knows he is Justin, not Jessica. No, right, we'll use the name Justin and that'll keep you in on us. <laughs> Why couldn't they just call her J or something? Well, like, yeah. just change your name outright. Just, right, you're called Jessica. Right, we're going to call you Jane. I don't know. Uh, so the police then decided that the unknown man must have been Alfred Boxall. Uh, they were quite disappointed when they find him, found him a few days later, alive and still bearing his copy of the Rubiat, complete with Jessica's inscription on the last page. It was not the same unique edition that the dead man had possessed. Poor Alfred. Alfred Boxhall, who was an officer in the army, fought for their country, was described as being... Whether, 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 that they were quite disappointed when they found him alive and still bearing his copy of the Rubiat. The sad to say this officer's still alive. Oh, God damn it, he's still alive. <laughs> Imagine a policeman knocks on your door, you answer, and someone goes, oh, uh, is, is, is this a residence of uh, Arthur Boxall? Yes, that is me. Oh, you're still alive. Fuck's sake, and they just turn around all the way. What? Yeah. You got a book, by the way. Yeah, this one. No, that doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if that's all they did, and he just stood there going, what? <laughs> Um, when the when this lead provider fruitless, Jessica was brought into the police station to view the body. Upon seeing his face, Detective Sergeant Lean noted that she seemed completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance she was about to faint. She was only shown a cast that had been made of the face and not the actual body, so this shock was not due to being with face, faced with a dead body. Even if it had been as a nurse, she had already had experience Um. Sorry, my phone keeps going off. Uh, being faced with death and sickness, so her reaction still would have been suspicious. It was clear to many that she recognised the man, but continued to deny any connection to him. The only other piece of information Jessica offered was that sometime a previous, that some time, the previous year, neighbours had told her a man had come asking for her when she was not home. She wasn't sure of the date. With Jessica refusing to relay any information of value, officers turned to the code. With only four short lines to work from, it proved impossible to crack. Naval intelligence tried to decipher the code. It was published in newspapers for amateur sleuths to take a crack at. The best code breakers from all over the world were all called to examine it. No one could give a definitive answer. Although many guesses were made, the Navy decided that the most reasonable explanation, based on the line breaks and frequency of the occurrence of the letters, was that the code was in English. 
and that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or such like. And despite many ongoing efforts, the trail ended there. So. So this guy has apparently managed to make a code that not even the Navy crackers and code experts could crack. But this guy, they assume it's in English. I mean, he's American for a start, so <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. Not even military code breakers can crack it, but this guy just read it. I mean, wants. there has been cases of people making codes and then they've been like nigh undecipherable until like a supercomputer or something went for it. But it's usually because it's been made to be nigh uncrackable, not because someone just sat there and wrote something in the back of a fucking book. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Either that or this guy was just the best code cracker in the world and it's nobody cool. knew at the time. She went in, she's used to dealing with dead bodies, stuff like that. It wasn't the body, it was the head and shoulders, the cast, a bust, basically. Yeah. Uh, she was completely taken aback and thought she was going to faint, but then went, mm, I don't know, I don't know who it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, relation or someone who sneakily asked her for some sort of medical <laughs> help and then left and said, please don't say anything or what? Because if if she's a nurse and if you know this person, if if she's you know she's working as a nurse or anything, you're trying to be under the radar. You're not going to go to a doctor's or anything, but you might try and contact someone who you know is a nurse and say, "Look, can you just help us with this?" Yeah. So there's two theories to this one. So I'll read you the conclusion of the investigation. Okay. Uh, in June of 1949, more than six months after the unknown man had been discovered, the body was beginning to decompose, so the police had the body embalmed, made a plaster cast of the head and upper torso. Uh, a plot of dry ground was chosen to help preserve the body in case it was ever necessary to exhume it. The summit man was finally laid at rest on June the 14th, 1949, with a small ceremony, his name still unknown and his death unavenged. The casket was sealed under a layer of concrete, and in the following... They chose a dry plot and embalmed him in case he needed to be exhumed and then covered it in a layer of concrete so he could be exhumed. That makes the amount of sense <laughs> an Australian who walks past a body thinking, that's just a drunk person, makes sense. Yeah, that's true. Um, <coughs> oh, so here we go. Uh, so... It's, it says, his tombstone says, here lies the unknown man who was found at Summerton Beach on the 1st of December 1948. That's it. Um, the casket was sealed under a layer of concrete, and in the following decades, two other bodies have been placed in the same grave. Flowers were intermittently found on the grave on and off until 1978, although no one ever saw who placed them there. Okay. Jessica Thompson passed away in 2007. Her son, Robin, who many believe to be fathered by the Summerton Man, died two years later. Her husband, Prosper Thompson, had passed away in 1995. Okay. Any secrets Jeston held were taken with her to the grave. A rare copy of the Rubiat was lost by police in the 1950s. <laughs> and no matching copy has ever turned up. The brown suitcase was destroyed in 1986. The final results of the investigation published by the South Australian coroner in 1958 concluded with the line, I am unable to say who the deceased was. I am unable to say how he died or what the cause of death was. 
Requests to exhume the body in order to extract mitochondrial DNA have been denied. Unless new evidence comes to light in the future, or code, or the code is eventually cracked, we will never know exactly who the man was or what happened to him. So there are two theories. Okay. Uh, first of all, she there were flowers intimately left at the grave after she didn't know who he was. Yes. Oh, I think it's her. Yeah. And a lot of people believe that the 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 her son is the summoned man's son. There is theory to suggest that. I'm gonna read what is the second theory first, because I believe what is the first theory is actually true. Okay. So the second theory will go straight down the wild rabbit hole is Fantastic. A number of facts in the case lead me to believe the unknown man was actually a spy and murdered over a piece of intelligence. Yep. Uh, of course, all of these facts could uh, easily be coincidences and there is no hard evidence to link them to espionage. The Australian government had very recently announced that it would establish a National Secret Security Service, uh, the Australian Secret Intelligence Organisation. One of their bases, Woomera, was in South Australia. It was top. It was a top-secret missile launching and intelligence-gathering site, pardon me, and was a short train ride away from Adelaide. Based on train schedules and the timeline the police established for the summit man's last day, he easily could have taken a train from Woomera and arrived in Adelaide in time to check his luggage, shower, and head to Glenelg. Um, the modus operandi of the man's death also leads to spy rumours, a poison so rare and so unknown that it could kill a man and then disappear from his body within hours so that no medical test could trace it. Certainly sounds like something the military would develop in, in its espionage network. It sounds very Th- James Bondish. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Thomas Cleland, the Adelaide coroner, did suggest that Digitalis or Strophothantin as a possible poison that could kill a man with no trace, and these were available in most pharmacies. It was never proven what actually killed him, uh, so this is where you can let your imagination run wild. Was it a secret chemical weapon? Was it a drug that people got from a pharmacist? Uh, or anything like that? Uh, as a footnote to the poisoning theory, let's examine the fact that there were no defensive wounds, no signs of a struggle, no obvious injection site. So then how was the poison administered if he didn't take it himself and that it wasn't in his food? Uh, he was found... Think back to what he was found and what was found, how he was found, and what was found on him. He was slumped over with a half-smoked cigarette on his lapel, held in place by his cheek. Uh, a pack of army brand cigarettes with Kensita brand cigarettes inside. Because of wartime scarcity, it was fairly common to hide cheap cigarettes inside of expensive packets. Right, so this would lend the appearance of wealth without actually needing to spend the money to secure the expensive and rare cigarettes. So you buy the buy the dear ones once and then keep refilling them with cheap ones. To make yourself seem wealthier than you were. However, it didn't you say at the start that it was a cheap brand of cigarettes inside a higher end? Sorry, a higher end brand of cigarettes yes. hidden inside a cheaper packet. It did In which say, case, trying to make yourself look lower yeah. class. Yeah. So it did say, but the man had put expensive cigarettes into a cheap case. What was the reason for that? Could it be that someone had replaced his cigarettes with ones that had been laced with poison? Uh, unfortunately, the Australian police disposed of the cigarettes before they could be tested. Of course. Uh, yeah. One very simple question that lends to the credence of the spy theory that no one has ever claimed the body. The man's pictures, fingerprints and physical details were spread throughout the world. 
Uh, if this was any normal person with an average job, friends and family, you would surely someone would have missed him. Someone would have come looking for him. Someone would have recognised his pictures and came forward instead of letting the mystery endure for 65 years. Even his activities throughout the day before he passed was only spotted by two witnesses. After he slumped over on the beach, in most cases, of course, it's easy to go through a day without being truly noticed by anyone. But if he was a foreigner from a non-English-speaking country, where the summit man's story was not well known, it can be assumed that he had a thick accent. A well-dressed man with a thick foreign accent wearing a, wearing a knit pullover and a jacket on the beach in summer, yet missing his hat that was common at that age, eating pastries and walking around eight hours uh, would have been noticed by someone, surely. He must have either been adept at blending in or hiding his accent, or had somewhere to be between noon and 7pm, if he wasn't visiting Justin. Justin, where was he? And then, obviously, there's the code. Uh, why was the... Like, one of the strongest sign that he was no ordinary man was the indecipherable code. Intelligence officials and professional code have agreed that it does not appear to be the insane martins of a madman. There is a discernible pattern. Yet no one has ever gotten close to cracking it. There's uh, a there is... pattern. Could it just be not the markings of a madman, but the markings of a bored man? Well, maybe. Uh, there is an explanation that stands above the rest. Spies commonly used one-time pads as ciphers, a special edition of a book that could be used to encode a message. And the book itself was needed to decipher it. For example, certain letters or patterns in the code would refer to a specific page number and a word on that page. Uh, if the code used numbers were 3712 for example it might refer to the 12th word on the 37th page uh, in the case in that case the letters could have been substituted for numbers and represent words that could have been pulled from the book to form a message uh, the Australian police lost that copy of the Rubiat that was linked to the Samaritan man and no identical copy has ever been found in the world the fact that this book appears to be unique could be explained by it not being a published book at all but a one-time pad used by aspiring uh, once the summit man had read the message, he tore the page that it was written on and threw the book onto the back seat of a nearby car. Uh, and then there's obviously taken all these stuff, uh, like labels out of his clothes, having um, screwdrivers and damaged scissors. He yeah. had broken scissors, but he still had a normal pair of scissors as well. So it's not like he was still using the broken scissors. Yeah, it's easy to infer that if he was murdered, his wallet would have been stolen. The murderer might have took the label from his clothes and stuff. Um, but his suitcase was checked in long before he died and was also struck by identification. Uh, if he was a spy, he would have been careful to travel with nothing on him identifying him over. There could be a simple explanation. During the war, most goods were scarce, including clothing. It was common for people to write their name on all their possessions. Uh, when selling to a second-hand top shop or a friend, though, those name tags would be removed. This man could have bought the clothes uh, and the suitcase used, explaining why the labels were all cut off. Many of the yeah. clothes and the suitcase did appear fairly new and not worn, so it seems unlikely that they were second-hand, but still a plausible explanation. I mean, there's the thing, though, that there's a lot of people who bought... There's been people who have bought clothes, realised they're too big, or there's... like. The person's died before wearing them or something like that, and then they've been sold or donated to places and they've been in pristine condition. So that yeah. could have happened. Yeah. So there is another explanation. Yes, and this is the one that you believe more. This is the one I believe more. So it's the suicide heartbreak thing. Um, okay. 
that he killed himself after being rejected by the nurse. Uh, the Taman, the, sorry, the Tamam Shud note in the man's pocket definitely supports the suicide hypothesis. The Rubia contains poems focusing on living life to the fullest and not being sorry when it's over. Uh, the meaning of the phrase ended obviously indicates the man was facing the ending of some kind when he told the scrap out. The labels were not only removed from his clothing, uh, which a murderer could, could have done to prevent identification of the body, but they were removed from his suitcase and all of his contents. He must have done that himself before leaving the train station. Uh, he had no significant bruises, injuries or defensive wounds that would normally be present had he been attacked or fought for his life. The pastry that made up his final meal contained no poison. It seemed that whatever the cause of death was, it was self-inflicted, not administered through force or secretly poisonous food. Uh, assuming then that the death was a suicide, why did he do it? This brings us back to Jessica Thompson. Although the police at the time were respectful of her privacy and did not push her, later investigations have turned up many interesting details about the woman formerly known as Jestin. In her interviews with police, she claimed to be married and gave her last name as Johnson. Marriage records, however, tell a different story. Jessica was dating and possibly even living with a man named Prestige Johnson. Prestige had gotten married in 1936 and was still technically married in 1946. Uh, Jessica became pregnant and moved in with her parents in 1947. She moved to Glenelg and took her future husband's last name. Her son was born in July 1947 and it wasn't until three years later, in May 1950, that Prestige's divorce was finalised and the two of them married. Jessica claimed the son was Prestige's and the two raised him as their own. However, there was speculation that Jessica had been seeing more than one man when she became pregnant. She admitted to giving Alfred Boxall a copy of the Rubiat over drinks at the Clifton Garden Hotel in August 1945. She became pregnant in 1946, uh, well before being to Glenelg, Glenelg with Prestige. She could have been dating more men between 1945 and 1946 other than Prestige and Alfred. Even Paul Lawson, who showed her the, cost, the, the cast of the body, had no her as being an attractive woman, and it was very reasonable to think that she had a host of suitors, one of whom may have been the summit man. He he may have believed that her son was his and travelled Adelaide for a last-ditch effort to win her heart and be with her and child. Jessica's neighbour mentioned the man had come asking for her. Maybe he did find her and make his play, was turned away in a fit of despair, wandered 400 metres from her home to the beach, where he was found and took the vial of poison that had prepared that he had prepared for such an occasion and collapsed. The theory does support the fact that no signs of a struggle, convulsions or vomiting was vomiting was found at the scene. He may have taken the poison at the water's edge, thrown the carrier into the ocean and begun to convulse and vomit there before dragging himself up the beach to collapse at the sea wall. It's even a poetic facing west watching the sunset over the ocean one last time. It does however seem strange that no one would have noticed such a scene. The driving force link to the summit and man to Jessica Thompson's son is the apparent similarity. Now, this is where, because at the beginning, it's kind of in the balance. I, uh, yeah. I don't think he was a spy, but he could have been. Don't necessarily yeah. think that he's involved here, but he could have been. But when you see the connection to him and her son. I'm guessing the son has very much the same sort of features, very similar like features or eyes or something like that then. Um, the driving force linking the summit to Jessica Thompson's son is the apparent similarity of many rare genetic traits that the two men share. Derek Abbott, a professor at the University of Adelaide who leads a team working on the 
cracking the case, claims to have obtained a clear picture of Jessica's son which shows both his ears and teeth. You'll remember from the autopsy report that the Somerton man was missing his two lateral incisors due to a genetic disorder. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, this is called uh, hyperdontia and is present in less than 2% of the population. Right, so it is extremely rare and I'm assuming it's one of the ones where it can only come from genetics. It's not going to be like a random mutation of, oh, this person gets it. It's like, okay, it's in your family genes. Yeah. Also apparent is the upper ear hollow, known as the Simba, B-Y-M-B-A, so this whole ear, ear, ear. Yes. You see how this one is much more than this one? Yes. So the lower one is called the cavum, and in most people, the top one's very small and the bottom one's very, very large, right? In her son and in the summit man, the top, the Simba, is the larger cave of the concave of the ear. Yeah, which is a genetic condition found in only 1-2% of the population. Okay, so again, very rare, must be, or at least predicted to be, genetic. Put these two genetic traits together, and the odds of her son very clearly having these traits, and the summit man very clearly having these traits, uh, the odds of this being a coincidence is between 1 in 10 million and one in 20 million. So one in 30 million chance that he's got both. If not more. No, no, this is combined. This is combined. So you combine oh, the combined. two together and there's a, about a one in 20, near enough to give or take, about a one in 20 million chance that two people unrelated would have both these conditions at the same time. And and be known to the same, or known. So this this isn't even being known to the same person or anything. This is just the odds of two people on the planet having these two conditions is 1 in 20 million. It's very, very bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, but the, the, so, yeah, that's, that's what I think. Um, apparently there are another couple of cases in Australia, though, that seem to be somehow linked to the Samaritan Man. Okay. okay. So, Joseph George Marshall, or George Marshall, was a Jewish immigrant from Singapore who passed away in 1945, a few years before the Summit Man was found. Marshall was found in Ashton Park, Sydney, with a copy of the Rubiat open on his chest. The death was ruled suicide by poisoning. His vision was published by a London publishing house called uh, The Methwin, and was a seventh edition. Seventh edition. However, Methwin only released five editions of the book. It appears Marshall's copy of the Rubiat was as unique as the Summerton's man was. Perhaps these books really were a one-time pad used by specific intelligence ring to encode messages to each other. Remember that the nurse Jessica Thompson gave Albert Boxall um, um, a copy of the Rubiat in Clifton Gardens just two months after Marshall was found dead. Clifton Gardens is next to Ashton Park. This links the nurse to all three men she gave Boxall a copy of the Rubiat over drinks. Her phone number was written in the unknown man's copy of the Rubiat, and she was in the immediate area when Marshall was found dead with a copy of the Rubiat on his chest. Was she a main link in a spy chain? Marshall was the brother of the chief minister of Singapore. When an inquest was held for his death, a woman named Gwyneth 
Dorothy Graham testified she was found dead two weeks later, her wrist slit in a bathtub. Oh. So that on the usual. So this my theory is also looking pretty tasty. It is looking pretty tasty. It's also looking pretty tasty with the nurse being involved somehow. And this book is fucking cursed. Well, uh, that's the thing, though. It's a 7th edition book. The publisher now has only done 5. This guy's was unique. So that I think, actually, I think it's possible that it's... It is a what? It is aspiring. It is a a, a one time pad, or they are one time pads. Um, and I think it's it's oh, he's gone. He's gone. Oh, he's back. <laughs> sorry. Uh, I think I think it's sorry. I think it is aspiring. I think they are one time pads. I think she is involved. Uh, but it's possible that she might have been sleeping with one or several of them, and maybe the the kid is the summoned man's kid. It's and that's why it was a. It's entirely possible they all went to the same bar, and that was her hunting ground, so so to speak. No, well, maybe. Well, there's just some of them aspiring, and they were they were spending time with each other and stuff. I mean, they might have there. She might have had this kid, you know, that was his. He might have worked that out and went there to try and, you know, maybe that why that's why he's trying to get a hold of her. Maybe it's both theories in one. There was yeah. also Keith and Clive, uh, man, Magnus, Magnus. Magnussen. Magnussen. I'm just going to say. Uh, this case okay. ties. This case ties to the and man are somewhat strained, but on the sixth of June, nineteen forty-nine, two bodies were found twelve miles down the coast from Summerton Beach. One was two-year-old Clive Magnussen, found dead and tied up in a sack. His father Keith was alive but unconscious and severely injured. Clive's cause of death was undetermined, although natural causes were ruled out. What? Because he was in a sack and he was two. Yeah. People don't obviously die of natural causes in a sack age two. That's not natural. I'd be worried if that was natural. Keith was rehabilitated, then sent immediately to a mental hospital. His wife, Roma, began reporting threats she received, including phone calls and a masked man trying to run her down with his car. She was warned to keep away from the police or else. She believed the tragedy occurred because her husband had gone to the police to identify the summoned man's body thinking it was a co-worker whom he had worked with a few years prior. When he returned from the police station after viewing the body, Roma stated that Keith had appeared quite shaken up, unable to talk about it or take his afternoon tea. On March the 21st, 1950, uh, Mangerson escaped from the mental hospital he had been held in. His clothes were found on Henley Beach, where the summit man's train ticket had been to school. He was captured in April 26, 1950. He was uh, eating almonds on a rubbish dump. He could not tell police where he had been for the past month, uh, and Roma Mangerson filed for divorce on June of 1953 on the grounds of habitual cruelty, although her husband was still being held. But this guy... For... Went to see the body to identify it, thinking it's one of his co-workers. Has assumedly told the police that he doesn't know him because... They still don't know who he is. But then this man's come home, being shaken, unable to eat his food or anything like that. Assuming he's just seen the bus like the nurse, it wouldn't be that much to shake you unless you've actually seen the body. But if they've just seen the bus like the nurse, then he shouldn't be as shaken as that, unable to eat his tea and everything, and literally gets sent to a mental hospital. Yeah. 
and so there's also it's still going. Uh, the guy who's running the case now has uh, done an art sketch of what you would look like when he's alive. Uh, and there was also another recent discovery is that of a US Siemens identification card. Uh, do me a favour and twi- twiddle your cable going into the thing because you've gone crackly. It's been since you stood up. I thought it would settle, but it seems to have not done it. Can't hear you at all now. I think I've lost you now, man. That's better. That is better. There we go. Um. So. And no crackling. Awesome. That's fine. Yes. Um. So U.S. Siemens. U.S. Siemens. So there was a a recent discovery of a U.S. Siemens identification card found by an Adelaide woman was going through old documents. The card is dated February the 28th, 1918, and lists the man's age as 18, and his nationality as British. The man in the photograph does bear a resemblance to the Summerton man, although it looks a lot younger, and would have been 48 when the Summerton man's body was found, which is an appropriate age as the body was guessed to be between 40 and 50. Um, okay. Based on autopsy findings, there have been many arguments against H. C. Reynolds being the Summerton man by tip close to the case, but a professor who examined the photo finds the theory definitely plausible. So there is no an identification card, but no one really believes it's him. Now, so he's a Navy man who's come from England. You tell me, because I want to... Be, been to America with clothes and stuff. So possibly ex-Navy went to America, ended up trying to go to Australia... I want you to notice it's not it's not the only thing, but I want you to notice his nose here because his nose is a giveaway here. So this is oh, <laughs> the someone have man. an issue. Okay, he looks pretty standard looking. Bit of a fat nose, bit of a bit of a wide nose. Yeah. Oh, but he, he looks he looks he looks quite well built he looks at least from the pictures he looks like he's probably quite well built he looks like he's possibly like normal standard sort of features some someone that you wouldn't notice really in a in a crowd if you walked past him uh, that is just oh yeah okay oh 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 there we go. So yeah, that that definitely yeah, that looks like him, man. That definitely looks like him. Yeah. So that's that's the fucking identification card. That's H. C. Reynolds. It was eighteen. He would have been forty at the time of the Sobat man disappeared. I believe that this guy was moved up through the navy, possibly into uh, some kind of spy thingy, uh, like. So you wouldn't know how to get on those ships or be noticed and recognised. He does look yeah. pretty standard of bland as well. There's no ridiculously outlandish features of anything. He just likes you looks like you're one of the mill guy that you would walk past on a street, which is exactly what you want for this sort of thing, because it's someone you're not gonna notice, is it? It's yeah, just exactly. someone that you'll you'll pass. He doesn't he doesn't have a wonky haircut or anything. He looks very Standard is the word I'm using. Just nondescript. Yeah. 
just a very normal person. Yeah, but almost too normal. Like, uh, he's a he's a bit stocky, but I don't know whether that's just the image. But he looks very normal to the point of being too normal. You know what I mean? Like, there's no mm. distinguishable features really. He's I mean, other than these genetic ones, but you know what? <laughs> Susie asked how long I've been researching this episode. Um, long enough that I've got enough for another episode on it. Um, uh, about two weeks. But we are running out of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, about two weeks. I mean, that's a fun. I've been going two hours. We you're have... waffling. You're waffling. Pat it out an hour. I thought it was only going to take about an hour to get through them. <laughs> Well, my, you should know this by now. When I when I delve deep into something, I delve fucking deep. I try to analyse every tiny little bit and piece. I know, but I'm halfway through. I didn't expect you to crack the case two sentences in. <laughs> Before you know any of the facts. Yeah, man. Also, dude, don't sit on the podcast clipping your fucking toenails. <laughs> you can hear it clicking. Loud as can anything. You hear it clicking? Yes, you can hear it fucking clicking. That's actually quite other when you're cutting your nails. Yeah, because it's got it's got to go through the claws. Jesus, man! Show some dignity. <laughs> I'm showing dignity. What about Jay Chewin and stuff on the podcast? Because he always turns up with some kind of snack. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Honestly, I won't, I didn't think it would pick up. I thought it would be like too much of a quick instant sound. It was so loud, but I'm so used to you just doing it in the background when we're chatting and doing things that I never registered. And I was like, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I do apologize to everybody. Hopefully, the hopefully with Stefan's static <laughs> and my clicking, you haven't immediately been put off us. Yeah. Sorry about that. My yeah. connection's temperamental and my mic isn't... Well, I don't know, my headphones jack's a bit bent. That's probably the issue. I use different headphones the next week. Yeah, Try I mean, them. I'm using old old school candies and if I move my headphones too much at a certain angle, it starts coming through the headphones and the speaker's laptop. So I apologise because... if you hear an echo at some point, it'll be mine. Because I don't have a permanent desk and do not have a permanent setup, I do not currently have my boom mic set up, so I am just using the headset mic. Uh, so I'm using my Turtle Beach, which has got a... It's really old, and it's got a slightly janky plug on it, but it's the my headset with the best mic, basically. I've yeah, got, I've got another couple of headsets. Yeah, I've got another couple of headsets that are newer, but they're cheaper, so the mics aren't very good on them. Never mind. Yeah, anyway. we, we did do a test and won the headsets... It's quite close on quality, but it's just quieter by default. Next week we may have we won't have a Jay for a little while because he's busy with other work commitments. We may have a Jordan. Yes. If we have a Jordan, we will do something else. I have fun lined up. Excellent. I like fun. <laughs> um uh, otherwise we can maybe do another uh, mystery solving episode. <laughs> I do enjoy the mystery solving episode, even this, this if I what, do solve it within the first 10 minutes. Is this what our podcast is? Our podcast is, if there's just me and you, we're going to just solve mysteries. And if there's more people, then we're going to play games. <laughs> yes, it's if it's just us two, it's going to become fucking Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, the Scooby-Doo of the high seas. <laughs> Taking off mysteries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Taking, off, Taking off the conspiracy theories. 
Finland doesn't exist. Can I do an honourable mention this week? I would like to do. I what I would like to do before we go is I want to honourably mention something, uh, just random that I love, uh, that I've seen, um, okay. and I've got a good go one this week. Um, is <laughs> this week? I've got, I've got a good one this week. That I can't find. That's how good it is. Um, <laughs> no, but it's that Hummer. Made oh where where the hell I have a screenshot of it somewhere. Hummer made an electric car. Did you know that? I didn't, but I'm assuming it being Hummer, it's the least efficient thing in the world. No, they made an electric. It's fully electric. It's really good for the environment. Okay, of course it is. Yes, Uh, and then they had a look and realised that it's actually slightly more dangerous to the environment than a small sized car. Um, sorry, a medium-sized family car. So, like a sedan, if you're American. Just a slight car. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is brilliant. This is so American. This is so Hummer. This is so Hummer. It's fully electric, and it's really, really good. Um, according to a study by the ACEEE, a non-profit research organization focused on reducing energy energy waste and negating the impacts of climate change, the new GMC Hummer EV isn't as green as it seems. Their research shows that the small Bolt EV emits 92 grams of carbon dioxide per mile, while the new Hummer EV is responsible for 341 grams of carbon dioxide per mile compared to most mid-sized cars of about 290. How... <laughs> Just because it's so inefficient. It, like, it's electric, but it's so fucking big and heavy and uses so much electricity that it's not efficient. Uh, but it is better because the old Hummer used to be 843 grams of carbon dioxide per, per mile. Oh, so it's better <laughs> for the Hummer, but compared to any other car in the world, it's still shit. It's more than half better for the world than the Hummer was. But it's still worse than having any car. Also, that's not saying much. The Hummer was a toy created for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Dude, I just... You know what? I love it. It's a toy. People who actually drive it... <laughs> just, it's, just, you can just imagine... Toy. Look how good it's electric and it can still go off-road and stuff. It's a Hummer and it's big and it's beefy and we're going to sell it to orange people in california and it's going to be great and block up the roads for no reason but look at it it's good for the environment now and then just someone standing there with a petrol car going mm, yeah but not as good as that <laughs> only the americans could make electricity inefficient it's the issue that i've got in my head now is that i'm imagining arnold schwarzenegger pulling up beside you like just you see him getting into a hummer at like a supermarket or something He's getting into this big Hummer. You're waiting on this big muscly man powering up his big engine and then it just goes... Can I make it even better for you? <laughs> yes. Because you're thinking of a Hummer. I am thinking of Hummer Hummer, yes. Right. Think of, you know, like iRobot electric car. If somebody had done that to a Hummer. Because that's what it looks like. You need to Google now the Hummer EV. Because it is not a fucking Hummer, how you think. It's mental. It looks like something from the future, but fat. (laughs) Why is it convertible? (laughs) I forgot it was convertible. (laughs) 2022 GMC Hummer EV. The roof comes off. Yeah. 
Why does the roof on a Hummer come off? So that, I don't know. Why does the steering wheel look like it belongs on a fucking 1940s Jeep? And why does it look like it's got a legitimate targeting system? Also, of course, it doesn't have a fucking manual gearbox. It's electric, it's not going to have manual. There you go, Hummer, your first customer. I knew you'd like it. I told you, it's designed to be just sold in California and block up the roads for no reason. Why does it have a spare wheel on the back? It's an electric Hummer. Chances are, one, you're not going to go off-road with it. And two, by the time you've managed to fucking jack that shit up, you might as well have taken it to a garage. Yeah, but you can do your own... You can do your spare tyre, man. Are you going to sit there and jack up a Hummer? Or are, you going to call, or are you going to call a truck to come and pick it up and take no, it away? No, because I'm not going to buy a Hummer in the first place because I'm a sane human. Exactly, but if you owned a Hummer, chances are you're rich enough that you're not going to change your own tyre. If I owned a Hummer, I'd probably be rich enough that I would just phone my chauffeur to come with the limo to pick me up while somebody else comes and collects the car. I'm probably another member of my staff. Yeah, exactly. Or I'll just phone mom and complain and she'll get us a new one. Exactly. <laughs> or dad, depending. Yeah, you know what all these Daddy, days I need a new him. car. <laughs> because, like, it's so totally the wrong colour. Right. Anyway, I'll leave you with a glorious image and want for the new Hummer EV. I will leave you with the glorious <laughs> sound of me saying, fuck that shit. <laughs> Have you ever seen anything more stupid? It looks like it looks like somebody's got a Hummer and crashed a spaceship and, and then they went, yeah, that's good. <laughs> it looks like someone's got a Hummer. Try to sort of flatten it a bit, a bit. You know, you know when you when you see people crushing metal and it and it, it flattens down, but it flattens out. <laughs> it's just a it's a uh, what do you call it, the Willy's Jeep? It's just a squash Willy's Jeep. Yeah. <laughs> No, because it'll still be fucking eight foot tall, that thing, I bet you. Uh, yeah, from the looks of it, yeah. 18 feet wide. Right. I, bet, I bet they were so proud that they'd made an electric version of it. They were like, look at, look at this. We've made it more, uh, we've made it more uh, environmentally friendly. Uh, it only does uh, two miles to the gallon, <laughs> two miles per charge, and uh, it only... <laughs> It, That's it a good only point, gives you, what's its uh, range going to be if it's that inefficient? It's going to be like a third, it's three times exactly. the pollution per mile, so it's going to be a third as inefficient. So if the average car can do 500 mile-ish, oh, no, well, it's kind of extended range, really, but we'll give it the benefit of the doubt and say the average electric car can do 500 mile. It means this thing's only going to do about 150 mile. The average electric car can do about 170. Well, there you go. So what's it going to do? 60 mile, they need to charge it. It's basically a G-Wiz. It is, it's a G-Wiz, but oversized. <laughs> Just on steroids. God, imagine, yeah. taking that into, imagine taking that into the fucking emissions, the low emission zone in London going, that's electric, it's fine. Well, nobody can fucking get past because you blocked the whole road up. I get the feeling that will be <laughs> the equivalent of the people who park their green painted cars in the green parking lanes and stuff. It's like, but it's a green I car. I have not done that before. It's a green car. It's technically a green car, but... On a technicality, does it say environmentally friendly car? Does it say electric car? 
it says green car. My car is green. My car parks in the green car bit. A lot of places do now specify on the floor like EV car and stuff. Uh, and that's fine. I'll not park there unless I take my milk float. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for listening to our random stupidity a note about a Hummer and us trying to solve mysteries with me going into far too much detail as always. This is why I write instead of trying to solve mysteries because I do every little tiny detail. If you write a mystery, I'll solve it. I want to write a mystery book now just to see if you can solve the mystery before you reach the final <laughs> page. Like, I'm going to purposefully leave it so that the mystery isn't fucking solved just to see if you figure it out. I'm going to create a mystery in my head and just write down the first sentence and see how long it takes to solve it. <laughs> <laughs> just, by it. Wild specula- just by wild speculation, you'll, have it, you'll hit on it eventually. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everything right. can be figured out eventually. We'll see you next week for possibly a little mini-game game episode. It'll be fun. A mini-game game episode, yes. Mini-game game episode. And hopefully, yeah. Stefan will have more wine next week so he can be a, a true Italian and just drink it all. Yeah, I've st- it's Spanish wine, and I've still got about two-thirds of the bottle. There was only a third of the bottle in that glass. Ah, then we shall leave Stefan to his third of a bottle. <laughs> I have more wine. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. It has been a pleasure, and we will we see, you see you all next week, next time.